Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. When we started this series back in 2017, we welcomed nearly every general manager throughout the game. The interviews began as a featured part of the MLB Newsmakers podcast feed. There was so much interest in the interviews, we ended up launching the Executive Access podcast on its own feed in the spring of 2018. Over the past few weeks, we've released a series of throwback episodes from that first season, featuring Nationals GM Mike Rizzo, Blue Jays President and CEO Mark Shapiro, Yankees GM Brian Cashman, and many more. This week, we present my conversation with Gene Afterman, who's been an assistant GM in Brian Cashman's front office with the Yankees for the past 19 seasons. I must admit, of the 80 or so podcasts I've done here at Executive Access, this is one of my favorites. Afterman has been called a trailblazer in the game, becoming only the third woman ever to hold an assistant GM position with the Major League Club. With Boston's Raquel Ferreira now holding that same title with the Red Sox, there have now been four women in history to hold that position. We talked about Gene's entrance into the game, her experiences working for and against George Steinbrenner, why more women aren't in high-ranking positions in MLB, and much more. As we wait for baseball to return, I hope you enjoy this 2017 conversation with Yankees assistant GM, Gene Afterman. Gene, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, so let's just start at the beginning. You grew up in Northern California, going yep. to Candlestick Park uh, yep. with your dad, who was a big Giants fan. What made you first fall in love with baseball? Um, you mean just as a fan? Yeah. Uh, I th- well, you know, part of it, I think, is the way everybody falls in love with baseball. Um, when you're a kid, you're doing something with your parents. Um, it's also, you know, it's a great game. It's a great game to watch. And, of course, uh, I'm that old that um, when, you know, I first started watching baseball, the, uh, you know, the probably... Black and white television was was the the best. I mean, I'm probably old enough so that if I had been aware of baseball, it would have been radio and no TV, but I'm not sure. But so black and white television, there's nothing like, so, you know, you see it on a little black and white TV and there's nothing like going to a ballpark. You walk in the gate and they'll hold the, you know, the the green grass, the blue sky, the players are right in front of you, the color, the action, the sound, Um, the, the social aspect of it. You can talk, you can laugh, you can, you know, it's just a wonderful, wonderful environment for a kid, I think. I think it still is a wonderful environment for a kid. Um, and that's how I fell in love with it. Although I have to admit that I'm also that old that um, that you know going to the ballpark was typically uh, a thing that boys did. Um, you know, you do something for your birthday party. So my brothers went to baseball games, and you know I went to the ballet or something like that. I even had the San Francisco Giants used to do a little girls' cap, so I had the girls' cap. But you know, you you can't keep a girl out. So <laughs> so you 
grew up in San Francisco, you watched the Giants, they never won a World Series until 2010. You had been working for the Yankees for almost a decade at that point. Were you able to, from a distance, enjoy the Giants finally winning a championship for San Francisco? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you what, I don't think you ever forget your hometown team. I mean, sometimes I meet people and they kind of, uh, they, they humana humana around, you know, they want to, well, you know, I'm actually a Mets fan or, well, I'm actually a Red Sox <laughs> fan. But I always ask them, were you, were you born in Boston or yes? And I always think you, you have to support your hometown team you know, no matter what. So, um, yes, I enjoyed it. I mean, it was hard not to because my entire family was, you know, jubilant. But um, so, no, I, I thought it was a great thing. You went to Berkeley. You were quite a performer there. Won a couple of dramatic arts awards uh, at Berkeley. Oh, yes, darling. Uh, tried to make it as an actor in London, San Francisco and New York before eventually deciding to go to law school. Uh, what made you decide to go to law school rather than pursuing an acting career? Well, I, I had sort of um, hung up my cleats um, on acting some years before I went to law school. Um, I um, taught English as a second language uh, here and, and, and in Europe. I, um, I then also worked for Paramount Pictures in the feature film department. And when I was there, um, uh, somebody that I worked with um, had said to me um, that, uh, I mean, it was a different time in, in Hollywood. It was a different time, and, and um, I wasn't really progressing in my below-the-line career. Um, and he just said to me, you know, you you're just seem um, too smart for what you're doing, and why don't you think about going to law school, which I had never thought of. So um, I thought, well, you know. Maybe I will think about going to law school. So I, I studied up for the for the LSAT and I um and I applied to about fifteen different um, law schools and I thought maybe I'd stay at Paramount Pictures and go to school at night. But so that's how I came to law school. I never ever envisioned. I had this whole idea that I would return to Hollywood as an entertainment lawyer, and um, that didn't you know that didn't happen. Um, and um, I kind of serendipitously found my way into um, baseball. Um, because Don Nomura, um, who was my comrade in arms um, in my, my agent career, um, he, I was working for a small civil litigation firm in Southern California, and he was a client of the firm. Um, we did a lot of real estate uh, for him, and he had a, um, a matter involving infringement of Japanese baseball card licenses. And um, the opportunity was to go to Japan um, to interview witnesses and collect evidence. I'd never been to Japan. And the senior partner um, asked if anybody was willing to do it, as we used to say, on a contingency fee basis. <laughs> and, um, and I thought, Absolutely, you know, I would. I'd love to go to Japan. Um, so uh, while I was in Japan, um, we Don took me to a, uh, a Nippon professional baseball game, Yomiuri Giants. I think it was actually um, Matsui's rookie year. I think saw him um, standing straight up with a stick at the plate, uh, and it it um, I'd been completely unaware of Japanese professional baseball. Had no idea that there were even you know leagues over there and considering that the first Japanese player was a member of the San Francisco Giants I mean you know shame on me but um, I was just surprised at, at the high level of baseball over in Japan and and it was incredible to me that I asked him why weren't there more Japanese players in in the major leagues and Don said to me well you know it's good that you ask thank you for asking um, that he said there was explained to me there was this 1967 agreement between the United States and Japan the commissioners uh, that prohibited Japanese baseball players from coming to the United 
United States. And um, I had only been a couple of years into my legal career, and like most young lawyers, um, I, you know, my first thought was, well, that does not sound legal to me. <laughs> right. So. Um, Just mind always working that way. Yeah, right? exactly. That is that something not right there. Um, so uh, we Don had been looking for some time for a Japanese player to challenge the system, and he found it with Hideo Nomo. So Nomo was our first client um, to challenge the system and. I was really, really lucky to work with Don um, throughout the 90s and represent Japanese players. We had cases, uh, you know, it's funny because now I'm, I'm a member of a, I'm, I'm an MLB, you know, member of a front office and, um, and where, you know, I spent my agent career basically um, faxing, uh, you know, federal complaints to, um, to Bud Sealing and Bob DuPay saying, I'm going to sue you, you know, I close a business <laughs> Friday if you don't make my client a free agent and, um, uh, but you know, that times change. <laughs> Things have a funny way of coming Things have a circle, right? Yeah. I still think I have a lot of fight in me, but I, I, I don't have a big fight. I think I have one more big fight in me left, and i got to figure out what that is. But anyway, I digress. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we worked together. Um, Nomo was our first client, and then, our, and then we had other um, Japanese and Dominican clients. Um, our motto was no North Americans because there were agents in the time still, still working um, now who, um, you know, were we couldn't compete with in in North America and they couldn't compete with us because at the time you know Japanese players we sort of had the market on Japanese players and there was a Dominican connection through a Japanese team so um, so there was Hideo and then um, Soriano was our next big case and um, Irabu and each one kind of built on the, um, the as I call them the Swiss cheese holes in the various agreements um, between the two leagues and the major league rules and the yakuyaku the baseball rules and um, just exploiting those um, defects in the way those agreements work together I, I would constantly tell Don we have to you know we have to force major league baseball and Nippon professional baseball to follow their own rules because if, if they follow their own rules then then these things are not permissible and you know just there's no substitute for the written word just the written word, get the written word. So um, we we were lucky that we had three great, courageous clients, Nomo and Soriano and Irabu, um, who, you know, had to go through a lot to get here. Um, and those were heady times. <laughs> but um, it was, it was um, interesting and exciting to be a part of kind of the change in international baseball and the relationship between um, the Japan leagues and Major League Baseball, and and um, and always a great thing when you can when you're representing somebody to to get them their dearest heart's desire, and and you know, we always used to say that like a lot of baseball players, you play baseball, that's your background. Particularly, um, you know, not in this country, they tend to have you know some more education and more opportunity than say in some other countries. You know, in the Dominican Republic. Um, a lot of times the, the kids don't have the benefit of education. I know that in Major League Baseball, we're trying to change all that. We do a fantastic job of that um, at the Yankees, um, as do a lot of clubs. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a mission with clubs. But the alternative was, you know, you could either let him play or he's going to pump gas. And that, 
actually, there aren't any. It's all self-service now, so forget that part. <laughs> not New Jersey. Not New Jersey. Okay. Well, at one time it was a great, you know, yes. way to put it. Yes. <laughs> not anymore. Um, but I think you. But I think you get my drift. Um, so it was, you know, it was important also to be able to, and I still believe that um, working on this side of it, you know, you you we have we are an industry that some say is burdened by rules and regulations, but we have. I mean, see all these piles of books on my desk. We have rules. We have regulations. We have the basic agreement, and if people follow them then we have an ordered world and if people don't follow them then you kind of have you know chaos right with nomo it was he retired and became a free agent and then uh came and signed in the u.s so if they kind of built on each other um you know if I'm, I'm going way i always say like way back you know way back before the turn of the century right. way, back way back in, in the, the 20th, 20th century <laughs> uh way back then um so uh there was this agreement and there were a series of letters that kind of clarified the relationship between the two leagues between both commissioners and there was a letter that said um that clarified for the commissioner's office um because good for the commissioner's office they asked the question um yes if a japanese player voluntarily retires from nippon professional baseball he's free to sign with any u.s club and at the time that nomo um that we did that um they i think neither league paid any attention because they thought he's let him do it he'll come over here he won't have any success he'll go back to he'll japan we won't even have to worry about it and then with hideo's phenomenal success all of a sudden and you know i think i think actually um i'm sure that Central Baseball may disagree with me, but but um, International um, MLB International is the entity that Nomo built. I mean, they didn't have a whole lot to do until Hideo Nomo burst on the scene, and then it changed everything. I also think, and this is you know in tribute to Hideo, I think that he actually saved baseball because that was after the strike. Fans were disenchanted, angry. Um, they had a bad taste in their mouth about the whole thing, and here comes this this remarkable player and and the enthusiasm from japan although initially when japanese players in way back in the 20th century <laughs> when japanese players left to come to the united states they were not treated well they were considered selfish for wanting to do so so um but you know then the the fans in japan combined with the fans um, in the united states it really created quite an exciting environment so anyway um so that was that was nomo and then Irabu, the, you guys basically created the posting system well, we didn't create well, the posting system. you played a role in, in the posting in system response. being created. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, Soriano was built on that. Soriano very quickly was the, the Japanese rules said that um, you can, if you don't agree with your salary, you can submit it, submit it to arbitration, um, which will be heard by the two league presidents and the commissioner. You can imagine how, how equitable <laughs> that is. Right. Um, the two league presidents and the commissioner, which I think was the way it probably was way back in the old days here and um they will they'll render a verdict and re render a decision and if you don't like that then you can voluntarily retire and um and so we're back in with the with the nomo thing right. so um we went to arbitration i think our salary request was remarkably reasonable i think it was probably the the minimum i think the minimum was the request or slightly above the minimum i mean um, he was young he was 20, he was, 21 years old. He right? was young, and it was it was like, and it was peanuts compared to what was being paid over here. I think it was probably, I, I you know, I can't remember what the minimum major league salary was at the time in the United States, but it was it was peanuts. He didn't go in there asking for two million dollars. Right. Um, still, uh, because you know that's the way the system at the time worked, uh, because the player asked for it, they said no. 
So, okay, fine. Well, he submitted his voluntarily retired papers, and then he was able to come to the United States, although not without a fight. Um, you know, the, the, um, the clubs in Japan, there was all kinds of threats of suing, um, and Major League Baseball had to stand by, you know, the rules. You had to tell them, these are the rules. If you deviate from, from the rules, then you're going to deviate from the rules here. And then with Irabu, um, Irabu was was um, slightly different, but the Japanese rules say <laughs> that um, if you, um, that you have to sign your contract for the next year in December of the year prior. Um, he, I think this was, you know, a lot of them, when you get to be my age, Mark, it all blends together. I like this, um, this, this, what your acting comes out with your old lady <laughs> voice. It's very, very Well, exciting. you know, darling, it's, it's tape, so you have to portray all the characters. <laughs> right. um, but part of what the case was with, with him was that obviously there was um, what we felt was an impermissible transfer of his rights to San Diego. Um, and the uh, Yaku Kyoyaku, the Japanese rules at the time, said that if you sat out a year, and waited till the following January 9th, then you would, and it was considered a punitive measure, you would be placed on the voluntarily retired list. The rule was intended to prevent people from sitting out because nobody wants to be voluntarily retired and not be able to play, but it was right. like, okay. <laughs> so that was the that was the tick-tock waiting. You know, right. we constantly reminded everybody that, look, you know what? He's still under reserve to the team in Japan. He can just sit out, and as of January 9th, he's a free man. Right. So there was a lot of, other things that went along with that, but you know, it was on, it was hard on on um, on all three of those players, very hard on all three of those players. Um, Matt, so he was completely different. He had to wait ten years for his free agency. Now, I didn't. I was on the other side of that, but we'll get to that. We'll go. Okay. All right. Never mind. <laughs> uh, actually, before we get to Arabo and 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 him coming to the Yankees, um, I want to go back to your your time as an actor. You, you did try to act professionally for a short period of time. Uh, London. I well, no, no. First, I mean, no. That right <laughs> London. London was my dream, of course. Right. London. I wanted to. Um, I, I. I auditioned for um, Rada. Auditioned for Rada, and I got a call back. Um, and um, but then, um, and I don't know. I did like, uh, you know, completely <laughs> inappropriate monologues. I probably did, you know, Cleopatra or something as a twenty-two-year-old. But, um, but I. Uh, I had um, been fortunate that I. I um, was in theater in college and then in the um, San Francisco Bay Area. So um, the world premiere of Mary Barnes. Um, and um, I worked at the Eureka Theater and a little bit at the Magic Theater. And um, and then I really, you know, had a dream of, of, of London, living in London. I still do. If anybody's listening out there, I still <laughs> want to move to London and act on the West End. But um, so I, I, I had... When I went to my callback, they, they very nicely and politely told me at RADA that you have so many excellent schools in the United States. And as a matter of fact, ACT, which was in San Francisco, you know, and perhaps you should consider that. So um, I came back to the United States and I continued to sort of um, act in the in the Bay Area. Um, I did the Berkeley Shakespeare Festival, which actually went and was my that was my first year summer associate job in law school was I didn't do any legal work. I did a, a season at the Berkeley Shakespeare Festival, which is summer season at the Berkeley Shakespeare Festival. Great law experience. It was great law experience. <laughs> I remember we did a tour in the fall after the summer. So I remember studying for my real property exam, you know, backstage with these massive volumes. Um, but, uh, you know, you never, ever uh, um, lose the 
the love of the theater, I think. And, you know, that's something I want to do when I retire. But I just want to do little community theater. You know, it's sort of like the waiting for Guffman thing. Right. The local dentist is Lear. You know, I can play the fool. And the guy, the grocery store guy will be, you know, whatever. So When you're young and you want to get into acting, is there is there a similarity there between young actors and kids breaking into the minor leagues where, you know, I think it's a long shot to get there. But you're going to play in every little A-ball town and just give it your best shot until somebody tells you not to. I, I think there is. I think there is. An, an, I mean, that's a... I never thought that. That's a really interesting point. There, There is, because the, the rate of success is, um, is minimal. It takes an enormous amount of luck. Um, you may have the skills. You may have the talent. You may not be able to focus it in the right way, and you may not be seen by the right people. And so there's, there's the pure love and joy of baseball, pure love and joy of theater, and then there's the business side of it that, can, that is soul-sucking. So the whole point about you know, getting an agent and, um, and um, the, the, the rejection side of it is also tremendous. I often feel for ballplayers also, I don't, think, I don't think anybody, or people do, maybe they do, maybe I'm not giving people enough credit, but you know, going out in front of 50,000 people and, and failing, it, I mean, the, the emotional toll it can take on, on somebody and the emotional high of playing, but also going out on a field and having people scream horrible things <laughs> to you. I mean, horrible things, not even... And that's sometimes the home fans. And that's the home fans, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the people screaming at you and, and um, it's, a, it's a very stressful stressful game i mean luckily in the theater um you know you do have the 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 fourth wall and you can have you know the darkness and you can't see the people out there um and so but i think they're very similar it's it's hard for young people to have the the stomach i th think to like really you know push yourself put yourself through that and 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 you know be able to achieve your your dream you have to go through a lot um and i think that's you know, and, and luckily for me, um, you know, unlike ball players, like uh, when, you know, if somebody in this front office wanted to retire at a certain age and <laughs> they couldn't go play baseball. But, you know, when I go back to the theater, I'm now going to be age appropriate for the roles that I was cast in. So it's a win win. <laughs> Brian Cashman said he first took notice of you during negotiations when you were on the other side of the table. I'm assuming that was the Arabu. Uh, would have been the first time you were across the table from him. No, we um we had um some other clients. Um, uh, we had Katz Maeda, who was a minor league player who came to to sign here. Um, we had, I think, actually he was may have been very early on. Um, uh, Soriano also was before Irabu. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um and uh, so Katz Maeda, I remember, I think. I think we got his thing in Japan, which is very unusual, was he colored his hair all different colors, so purple, yellow, green, blue. And um, I think we dealt with uh, George Steinbrenner on that. that um, <laughs> we, I, I, like to, I like to think, the way I remember it, of course, memory is a terrible thing. You know, you're always the hero in your, <laughs> in your memories. Um, I think we sort of had the first and only hair clause where he was allowed to, you know, wear different colored hair well, if he wanted to, as long as the cap was on. Breaking which, new ground. <laughs> breaking good. new ground. Uh, so, so Brian said he first took notice during those negotiations of you. What were your initial impressions of Brian? Well, um, Brian, I first met Brian as the assistant GM. Um, and um, Brian was always uh, so level-headed. 
I mean, so so level-headed, not bombastic, not emotional, um, always easy to deal with. I mean, really easy to deal with, and a great sense of humor, um, and um, and responsive. You know, you a lot of times you'd call a ball club and they'd bob and weave and dodge and wouldn't call you back, and um, or if there was a problem. But Brian's always. Uh, you know, always accessible, always took calls, always worked through problems. Um, you know, uh, George Steinbrenner was um, was a larger than life, you know, personality. Um, also not bombastic and very little yes, at all the time, right? So I guess my my point is that, and, and there, you know, there's a there's a um, if if you if you want to blast upon the world stage, then uh, you know, um, then you blast upon the world stage. So uh, Brian was sort of the the complete counterbalance to George. I mean, he was the, you know, rational, level-headed, you know, not emotional, um, easy to deal with. And so that's, you know, he still is rational, level-headed. I mean, you in the media, you know that. You once called negotiating with George one of the highlights of your theatrical career. Ah, yes. Uh, What was it like sitting across the table from him and what was it like working for him? Um, so it's interesting. Um, I, uh, when I negotiated across the table from him, I was able to call him George, of course, coming to the Yankees then it's Mr. Steinberg. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, you know, I always enjoyed, um, uh, jousting with, with him. I mean, he, uh, the idea that he wouldn't, um, you know, tolerate resistance was nonsense. I mean, I think he probably, my experience was <laughs> that uh, he was just waiting for somebody to talk back. Right. Um, and, you know, my parents raised me with no fear. I mean, uh, and that if you have something to say, you say it. And, uh, and you know, that's, and, and I'm not a shrinking violent. <laughs> um, so just, it seemed to me the, the easiest thing in the world, you know, it, sometimes also we have a, um, you know, around the dinner table at my family's house, you know, everybody's talking at the same time. And so, um, you know, talking over George was not difficult because I'd learned that at many Thanksgivings. Sure. Um, but so, so I enjoyed that. And then, you know, working for him, um, was the best training in the world because, um, because he was so demanding, uh, he, you had to be on your game all the time. You had to know absolutely everything. He had an uncanny ability to ask you the one thing that you didn't have an answer for. But then what you just have to say is, you know, look him straight in the eye and say, I don't have an answer to that. I will get that for you as soon as possible. But I always tell people though, that um, everything that they've ever heard about George, George Steinbrenner, good and bad, it's all true. So, I mean, you know, there's a, you don't have to make somebody a saint to appreciate what a tremendous, you know, person they were. And, uh, and the fact that he's, you know, not in the hall of fame is staggering to me, just staggering. Um, because this, you know, George and, and, and this family, they, they are hall of fame owners. And I'm not just saying that, you know, because they're my bosses, but, <laughs> but cause it sounds like that it sounds self-serving, but, but, you know, they, they, they put the money back in the team. They, they, um, you know, they do everything they possibly can um, to preserve this national treasure, this legacy that's the Yankees, you know, this this um, this vision of of good vision of, of America. And they feel a, you know, a responsibility to to history and the fans. And I think that's and they're accountable. And that's, you know, another thing. So anyway, that's it sounds self-serving, but it's but it's all true. <laughs> 
you became only the third woman to hold an assistant general manager job of the big league team. It was Lane Stewart with the Red Sox, Kim Ang, your predecessor here with the Yankees. Currently, you're the only female assistant general manager. Uh, why do you think more women haven't received opportunities for these types of positions? Um, it's an it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. Um, I think that uh, I I feel that um, that I had the benefit of coming from the agent side. Um, so I feel I had the benefit of coming from the agent side. Also, being a lawyer, I think for me at least, um, gave me the confidence. You know, I I think it. Everybody's got to know, you know, Brian Cashman, George Steinbrenner, the only general manager and owner in all of professional sports to hire not two, not one, but two female assistant GMs, the only ones. Um, I don't know. Does it, uh, I think that says something tremendous about Brian. Um, does it say something less tremendous about his colleagues out there? Perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I challenge you to prove me wrong. Um, but I think that in this day and age... I, Look, I think the cultures are changing in baseball front offices. At one time, the general managers were um, uh, ex-ball players, very close to the field, um, not a lot of business involved. You know, just um, and now a front office has grown exp exponentially. You know, there are so many elements to a front office that weren't there. So now there, then there was this huge wave of um, of MBAs and and Ivy League um, guys that everybody felt that that they were the the second coming. And then there's a huge wave of of now you know owners select um, uh, data you know folks that that are um, are heavy into analytics right. but i think what what everybody needs to understand brian said to me um, when i took the job that that the um the job is defined by the person that sits in the chair um and i think that's true and i think the the other thing to recognize is that this the the job in a front office is not it's not it's multifaceted it's not one face so you can't be you know only an ex-player and because you'll fail, you can't be only a Harvard MBA because you're failing. You can't be only an analytics, you know, person or else you'll fail. And I think that that you have to find the right candidates who kind of combine a lot of of those skills and talents or somebody who can recognize and put people in those positions. Why aren't there more women? I have no idea, because I guess my some total of what I'm saying is that you have to be, uh, you have to have a mind and an active mind, and you have to be really smart to be um, in a front office and to be a general manager or assistant general manager or, or any of the other people that I work with um, in my department. And women are just as smart, if not smarter, <laughs> than men. So <laughs> I think it's a matter of opportunity. I think it's a matter of opportunity. I think it's also because maybe, um, you know, some young women out there don't know that that feel that that they wouldn't be considered a candidate and i just think that you know more and more i challenge all the ball clubs out there to to show young women out there that that they could be a viable candidate um because there's absolutely no reason why look i never played baseball and i'm here so <laughs> you don't have to play baseball to and be you're here for a long time and i've been here for a long time when, when you look while you're the only assistant general manager uh, only female assistant general manager. There are other women in yes. high-ranking baseball ops jobs. Uh, Raquel Ferreira with the, yes. the VP of Major and Minor League Operations for the Red Sox. 
Pamela Pitts is the director of baseball has been administration there for, for the A's. A long time. Uh, Sarah Gellis is the director of analytics and major league contracts for the Orioles. So there are several women. Do you view that as major progress over the past progress. 15, 20 years? Progress. I mean, I view it as progress, not major progress. I mean, I, I think that we all, you know, every woman that, that, um, that is in a front office and um, is successful in a front office, you know, proves, proves the, the theory. And, and um, you know, um, women like Pam Pitts, they've been in baseball for years and years. There are a lot of unsung heroes um, who have been in, in heroines. <laughs> I know it's funny because act, actresses somehow now like to be called everybody. Actors. Actors. Right. I know. It's a, my, my mind. Sack Awards is where everybody noticed that. that yeah. I'm, I'm an actor. That's, I'm an actor. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. Um, and and um, you know Raquel when she um, when she got the position I uh, emailed her welcome to the brethren because that's you know what right. <laughs> the one good thing about being a at the at the present time the one good thing about being a woman in a front office is that when you attend the GM meetings there's never any wait for the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you uh, in 2015 you were appointed to serve on the advisory committee that oversees the commissioner's front office and field staff diversity pipeline program. Where do you think baseball needs to improve most in that area? So I think that baseball, we, we get knocked in baseball all the time. We get knocked about our drug program, which is the best program in all of sports. We get knocked about diversity, but I think that, that, um, that um, I think the, the folks at 245 Park Avenue and the commissioner I'm sure they've done the opposite. The commissioner and the folks at 245 Park Avenue, um, Rob Manfred, they have a, a commitment to um, creating a more diverse and gender diverse um, um, front office and field staff. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a you know something that they have committed themselves to, and they're trying to make take steps towards that. It's a um, it's a it's a difficult thing to do because. Um, I don't think that the um, I don't think that the prior commissioner's rule worked because all it did was send people in for phony baloney interviews and they which they knew they weren't going to get the job but it was just all window dressing. But I think that's why um, MLB created the pipeline, which is that you have to create um, you have to create fully qualified people, and the only way people become fully qualified is by experience. So if you create a pipeline of of highly qualified candidates, then there really is no reason to say no. So you have to sort of prevent people from saying no. And I think baseball has taken a lot of steps. There are things that we're considering on the committee um, about, uh, you know, how to create these positions, how to, um, you know, make it, um, because I, I believe that um, if you are more diverse and more gender diverse in a front office, I think that there is a greater wealth of ideas. I think it only improves a front office. It doesn't detract from a front office. Um, you know, we're not the same. Men and women are not the same. We're different. We bring different perspectives. Um, and, uh, you know, somebody, um, somebody, uh, you know, from a diverse background is different from my background, you know? So, um, those bring experiences that, that I don't have. So I think that, um, you know, we're trying to, we're considering, um, the idea of of um, fellowships um, in in baseball, we we would you know there's a lot of a lot of I'm, I you know I'm bumbling and I'm mumbling because I, I don't really have an answer actually about how you make it better. Um, I think the way you make it better is just take the first step. You know, take the the take these steps and and um, hire a you know follow through on what our history is. You know, I think baseball 
you know, Jackie Robinson stands as a, uh, you know, as a titan in, in the world, not just in baseball. Um, and we have to follow our legacy and our legacy is um, inclusion. That's always been our legacy. Um, you know, Billy Bean, who is a tremendous individual and um, was appointed by Bud Selig to be the ambassador of inclusion. I always joke with him like, that's, a, that's quite a title. <laughs> um, but, you know, his the, the idea that we are where I started off in this conversation when I was a child. I mean, baseball is is something that 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 kids love, that that has everything about that's good about you know, America, you, you are, you see all different players on the field from all different countries, not just from the United States. You see, um, black players, white players, Latin players. Um, you see, um, kids, bat boys. Sometimes you see bat girls. Um, you see the people in the stands, you're able to talk. It's not just a, you know, you don't just sit there and stare at a field, you know, you socialize, you talk about it. There's engagement. I mean, that's important. I think also in the world today, people aren't really talking to each other, you know, so there's, that's the whole part of, of the game. So I think we have to, in baseball, we have to embrace what makes us great and not try and feel that we have to be more like football or soccer or the NBA. So, um, you know, sometimes I go off on a tangent and I have no idea where <laughs> this winding okay. road was going. I don't know if I answered your question or if I just stood on a soapbox and preached. Well, what can we do to be more diverse? Take take next steps. This is all great, but take next steps. You've been a frequent guest speaker on the topics of women in sports and the business of baseball. Uh, you've done events sponsored by MLB, Columbia Business School, Beyond Sport, Wise, among many others. Do you feel a responsibility to take part in such events given your your position? Um, I, you know, I, I'm always thrilled and honored to be asked. I mean, I, I'm just, uh, as you commented early, give me a microphone and, <laughs> you know, the funny voices come out. But I, I do feel, um, you know, somebody at the commissioner's office had said to me that, you know, you have to, you have to stay in that position. You have to stay there so that little girls can see that there's somebody there. You know, um, I was talking with, uh, with Raquel about this, you know, people have to see Kim Eng is very, she articulates it, I think, better than anybody else and much better than I have. But, you know, young women, girls have to physically see that there are women in, in baseball. And I think it's important to talk about it. I think it's important to, to, to talk about the success of women in baseball. Um, and I'm not, I don't, when I go there, I don't, I, you know, I hope I'm not complaining. I hope I'm not <laughs> complaining. Um, and I mean, I'm not, you know, I think that, that, that we have made steps in baseball that are you know, more than any other sport. I'm not sure how many women are in the front office at, in other sports, but, you know, we are trying to build on the legacy of our past. I know that's, a, I, you know, I, I, in the last five minutes, I fell in love with that phrase. So I'm just <laughs> going to insert it for, in everything. But, there you go. but, but um, I do, I do feel an obligation. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Sometimes I don't articulate them as well, but I think it's important to talk about it. I think it's important to talk about everything, actually. I don't, I think that, you know, you can't leave things, things have to be put out in the open and examined and changed. That's you, how change happens. When you talk about having little girls be able to see you in the job, do you consider yourself a role model with that in mind? Um, I guess by virtue of the fact that I am the assistant general manager at the New York Yankees, yes. I mean, um, I could, you know, probably wear a, you know, a clown suit and, and floppy shoes, but by virtue of the fact that I'm, <laughs> I'm the 
General manner. Yes, I. Well, you know what? I'd like to You'd be. be in I the would, New York papers a lot more. I would. Sloppy shoes. <laughs> I know. I'd be on the back page <laughs> rather right, than. That's right. <laughs> but I. I no. I. 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 I do feel a responsibility, and I'd like to be a role model just by virtue of the fact that I'm here. I've been here 16 years, and um, and you know I've I've been I've been treated well, and I've been and you know we've done a lot of things that 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 I'm proud of. So. In doing some research for this, I saw that the Sporting News once tabbed you as one of its Power 100, <laughs> and the New York Post has twice named you one of the 50 most powerful women in New York. What does power mean to you? Uh, you know, I, I I always think power. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stand at the top of the mountain, then, right? With the you know thunderbolts, right? Um, so, I think power is probably um, means that you have the ability to change things. That's probably what 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 power means. I mean, there are different you know, there's political power, there's, there's physical power, there's emotional power, there's all that sort of stuff. But I think, I think, um, power should be the ability to, to change things. I'm not sure that I've, I've, in that sense, I'm not sure that I've, I've used all of my (laughs) power. (laughs) Um, and I probably have, you know, greater superpowers than I've been using. And it's kind of a wake up call to try and use those superpowers a little bit more. But, but I think that's probably what, what power means. And follow on that, Brian once called you, quote, a very powerful woman in a baseball world of men. Does gender ever come into play when it comes to doing your job? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I did mention, you know, the the flippancy about the <laughs> male and female bathrooms at the general manager's office. But, um, <laughs> That's plus. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. It, I mean, initially when um, I've, I've, you know, Initially, I've told this story before. When I first became the assistant GM here, um, all assistant GMs, um, well, Kim was at the Dodgers, but primarily people think of, of assistant GMs as being men. So when Brian would introduce me, he would introduce, this is my assistant. Now, if you point to a man and say, this is my assistant, they assume it's the assistant GM. Right. And um, when he pointed to me, it was basically get the coffee and, and you know, um, excuse me, where may I hang up my coat? You know, that sort of stuff. So I got this, <laughs> I trained Brian. Um, I told him, you can't, you know, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to, you got to validate me. So um, I, he had this whole little speech that he would have to run through, which is, this is Jean Afterman. She's my assistant general manager. I took her from the dark side. She used to be, you know, an agent. She's a lawyer. Um, so that people, and I could see, physically see the synapses trying to connect like, wow, what's a lawyer doing getting coffee? You know, I mean, that would be the first thing. Like, what, what's a lawyer doing taking notes? You know, I mean, that... So, so um, I think for... I think if you ask women in baseball front offices, they'd probably tell you the same thing, um, which is that uh, it does get tiring to have to prove why you're sitting there and to have to... It may not be a, an overt question, but it could be you know, an unconscious question like, um, and I, I know that, uh, you know, people, um, in when you're, when your skin isn't white and you're the only person that walks into a room, um, you get the same thing probably to a greater extent or maybe not, but you know, when you're the only woman and you walk into a meeting, there's, you are the only person there. So gender does play a factor. I do have to say that I've never, from from ball players, um, from the time I represented them, clear on through now, I've never ever had any discrimination from ball players. I mean, I think maybe it's because I was a lawyer, and they're like the last group that <laughs> that um, respects lawyers. Never heard a ball player tell a lawyer joke. Cause <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but you know, I always I felt more gender discrimination um, litigating in California Superior Court than 
if I ever felt, you know, working with baseball players. 16 years into this, do you still feel the need to prove yourself? Um, you know, I guess difference is validate. Um, or validate or yourself. Valid no, not validate, not prove. I'm, I'm, I'm not using the right word or, or um, you know, um, explain why I'm there. Um, I mean, at this sometimes... point, everybody in baseball knows who you are. There's no... People don't still look at you as, you know, oh, she must be Brian's assistant. Well, I'll tell you what. I get, um, and I'm sorry to say, and it's not just because I'm a Cal graduate. I'm sorry to say it's from a lot of those prestigious Ivy League schools. I get I the emails. I didn't go to one. It's okay. Good. Good. At a baby. <laughs> I do get an email. Dear Mr. Afterman, I have followed your career with interest. You know, this is, and this is what they're teaching them in MBA programs. But um, um, I, I'll tell you what I do. I, um, I'm not proud of it. But whenever I respond to um, an email in somebody in a front office or somewhere, I make sure that it has my signature on it. You know, it says uh, Gene Afterman, you know, comment yes, you know, senior vice president and assistant general manager. Um, because there, uh, I think the general assumption still amongst front offices, listen, I know the, the, I know the GMs, I know the assistant GMs, but there are a lot of people that are directors of baseball operations or just getting into baseball and, and, um, and, you know, they generally will think that a woman is the, um, you know, is the, is the secretary and, and, um, yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I'm not proud of it, but I'll just slap that email signature on sure. there and like a big banner. Right. Um, but, um, probably says more about me than about the world, <laughs> but, um, but, um, I, I think that, that I don't see any man, uh, having the need to, to do that. Um, but I think for a lot of women, they do, uh, you know, you still have to, um, I, I, I'm at this table, you know, because I have the talent to be at this table because I have the smarts to be at this table because, you know, I've been at this table for 16 freaking years. <laughs> um, and um, so, yeah, but, you know, times are changing. I know you've been asked this question a hundred times, but I'm going to make it 101. Do you want to be the first female general manager in Major League Baseball history? No. No, I mean, well, when you put it that way, it's that. So do I want to be a general manager? Um, no, I don't want to be a general manager. I, uh, I um, I don't team president possibly, but not. <laughs> I've read that you, you've said team president would be a, a the more likely step for you. If well, you likely had your, if you had your choice. If I had my choice, right? Um, no, I I um, no. For some reason, it just it's not appealing to me. I mean, I uh, I'm um, I've had a really it's incredible. You know, being an assistant GM to Brian Cashman, that I can't think of. You know, I, I don't think there's any better job in baseball. Um, and um, and so I don't think I'd want to, I don't even think I'd give this up to be a team president. You know, I got a great gig here. What's, uh, for those who don't know, what does your typical workday consist of during the season? Um, so... We don't need the whole TikTok. No, 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 I know, I know, speaking. I know. Um, so usually... What I do is, so I'm like, like at a movie studi studio, I'm probably business and legal affairs for the team. We have a separate, you know, general counsel and a legal department and they handle, you know, the stadium and the tickets and all sorts of stuff like that. But I do the, all the legal matters and the business matters for the, um, for baseball operations. So that's the major league team. That's our minor league affiliates, Dominican Republic, um, anything having to do with baseball. So a lot of it in a way is almost being, you know, like on-call counsel. 
Um, and we have issues that come up with player licensing. Um, in any given day during the season, um, uh, you know, I am also involved in conversations when we all meet about um, acquiring somebody. Um, so, and, and the work goes on even during a season. Every club is always trying to make themselves better day in and day out. So generally there's a sort of a purely baseball operations meeting going over um, strengths and weaknesses of the club, you know, who's available, who might be available, who's not available. Um, sometimes you have to get on the phone with the team trainer or the doctor and find out if there's something, you know, going on with the player or when do you anticipate that this guy's going to be able to come off the DL. Um, I get calls from our affiliates about um, if they can use a particular player image likeness. Um, I work closely with the um, with the corporate sponsorship department because there are restrictions on, on who we can take on as sponsors and those are guided by the, the you know the rules and the, and the regulations and and um, sometimes there's you know our, our um, there are a lot of labor matters in the Dominican Republic that that you know um, I work with local council on um, so it's generally sort of a hodgepodge and then at, at uh, so Brian calls you his compliance officer that, that's, that's, pretty, I, yeah. that's a pretty good title yes that's a pretty good title I usually also on a game day I'll head down there between 4 4 30 to the clubhouse I'll take a turn around the clubhouse and step outside so the coaches the players and the clubhouse staff um, see me it's kind of um, because if they have a question or a concern, um, it's much better to be there so they can talk to me. It's kind of daunting to come up to four floors or to call. But uh, sometimes if I'm walking around, somebody will say, Gene, 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 I got a question, I got a question. So I do my spin around there. Um, and if there's something that has to be dealt with upstairs, you know, then um, hustle up. But And then, you know, like... Like I hope millions of Americans out there, then I just sit in my chair, turn on the television, watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I think most people's perception is that the off season is when a front office is busier than in season. But it sounds like for you that might not be the case. Um, well, I think our, we have a set baseball calendar. That's where it's so much like the theater. You know, you have your rehearsals, your tech rehearsals. You go into production, then you go into your next, you know, series. So um, the off season has a very set. You know, you have free agents, then you prepare for salary. You have the free agents, rule five, salary arbitration, then, you know, the, everything preparing for the for that roster. But but once opening day hits, there are always going to be things. And then during the season, you lead up to the amateur draft. Um, then you lead up to, you know, the, the non-waiver trade deadline. And then you lead up to the postseason. And every single day, there's it, there is so much that goes on before a team takes the field um, just to get them on the field. Right. Um, and even little things like um, is somebody wearing, you know, shoes that are the wrong color or, um, you know, I mean, even everything, every little detail. Baseball is a very detail oriented game. I always refer to it as the mundane business of baseball. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, in 2007, you, Brian and Randy Levine went to Asia, formed a working agreement with the Chinese Baseball Association. Do you think there's untapped baseball talent in China that could eventually impact the big leagues? And not only China, but other parts of the world for that matter, where it seems like you look at the majors and it's, you know, North America, Latin America, Asia, or, you know, Japan, really, not even Asia. A little bit of Korea, maybe, or, or Taiwan. You know, right, some players. yeah. But it seems like there's an awful lot of the world where we haven't found baseball players, and yet maybe they're out there? I think they are. Don Nemora and I always had a dream that there was some, you know, like six foot five um, 
young athlete in northern China that could throw like 110 miles an hour, and we were going to find him and you know bring him here. And um, I think uh, you know there are other clubs that have um, that have done some very interesting things with um, signing players from India or um, uh, Africa successfully. Sure. Um, yeah, I do believe that there are. Um, I think there's untapped raw talent out there. We, the funny thing is we went, when we were um, doing work with, with China, and once again, when, you, when you're dealing with China, everything has to go through the commissioner's office. Um, so I went with, um, with some of our scouts um, to a youth tournament in Chengdu, in the interior of China. And um, they, the players there were, they were, so there was a youth tournament, and they'd all had um, the benefit of Japanese coaching and uh, Japanese it's a lot about small ball, um, doing all the fundamentals in small ball. And there were like these six foot two kids playing baseball. And uh, I remember um, it was like the the eighth or ninth inning and um, I mean, this big, broad players and you just wanted them to swing for the fences. And I think we saw seven successive bunts. <laughs> you know, bunting the guy over, bunting the guy over, bunting the guy over. And, um, and you know, one of our scouts was like, Hit the ball. <laughs> so, um, and they were capable. I think the, the the problem is for baseball. Baseball is not something that you can just pick up um, and uh, and and do. It's not like picking up a ball and throwing it into a um, a basket, which takes an enormous amount of skill. Um, but baseball has to kind of also be in the same way that we're a part of culture. You know, there's a huge culture of, of baseball in Japan and a huge culture here and, and, uh, and in Latin America and Korea and Taiwan. So it's a, it's a cultural entity. And if you don't start off playing baseball, um, we just have to get you at least in your junior high to high school years, you know, and that's where you have to give opportunities to athletes in other countries to be able to play baseball. So do I believe, yeah, I do. I absolutely do. It's, it's a, it's a game that requires, um, smarts and skill, um, I've, I've never met a dumb ball player. You know, you have to have smarts. Um, and, and I think that there are some, there's some raw untapped talent out there, um, that, uh, just hasn't found a home in other sports, you know, and there's something that would be very appealing about the, you know, it's a, it's a team game where you can be entirely lonely. I mean, you can, you can be, you know, it's a team sport, but it's not a, a team in the same way that say football or, or the NBA, right. but, but I think it can give, it can be very appealing for, um, children and, and, you know, teenagers. It's a very appealing game to play. Not that I ever played it, but it's a very appealing, I've heard it's a very appealing game to play. Much was made of your role in helping recruit Hideki Matsui to the Yankees. Given your history with Japanese players, was there pressure on you to help deliver him here at the time? Uh, well, actually, I remember when I went over, um, so I, I flew over to Japan and I waited the, I think it was 22 days. I was there until the date in November when he was able to, when NPB would declare him a free agent. <laughs> I remember George told me, um, you know, you, uh, um, what was it, head west. You go to Japan, but if you don't bring him back, just keep heading west. Don't ever come back. Um, so um, I... Uh, Got a little George voice in there, too. Like. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not good on George. But, um, difficult to imitate. Um, but I, I, did, I did feel... Well, you know, I, I, I knew that he had said that his favorite player was Babe Ruth. And so when you are recruiting for the Yankees, it's a 
I think that you that it's um, not to be Yankee centric, but um, you know there is part of your work is already done for you because you do have the the history and the tradition and um, you know it's the New York Yankees you know and and, uh, and all of the great ball players that have that have gone before and and um, and there was a connection of course obviously between Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig who went over to Japan um, and um, so. I think it for me it was um you know I, I sort of had an I sort of knew that he wanted to be a Yankee. Um but a smart player, smart agent, um, you know, they played their cards close to the best and you know, didn't declare themselves and um but you also have to I think when you're um that's the other thing about baseball, when you're when you're working with international players, players from different countries, um you know, in the same way that women are different from men, there you we're not all the same the world over, and there are things that um, culturally that are important in Japan, culturally in the Dominican Republic, culturally in Mexico. I mean, there are different ways to approach a player, and you have to have. I mean, for crying out loud, there's you have to approach a player in North Dakota differently than you approach a player in Southern California. So there are different things that that appeal to them, um, different different things that you can different things that make them tick, and and where they, you know, there, there's, there's an approach. So, um, my experience with Don and with our, our Japanese players was held me in good stead with that. Matsui obviously won the World Series MVP in 2009, the one World Series that the Yankees have won since you've been here. You guys went to Washington the following season, brought the World Series trophy. President Obama welcomed you in, and when he was about to pick up the World Series trophy, you said, quote, let him hold it, he may not get a chance again. Of course, he's a White Sox fan. And that was my point. You. My point was not that he would never, you know, I, the Secret Service almost tackled me to the ground because there was an implied thrush. You, you, you later said you immediately regretted saying the yes. comment as everybody sort of oohed yes. uh, at the time. And I believe your exact quote was, man, that sounded Republican. Yeah. Uh, what was that entire experience like for you of going to the White House and having that happen and just sort of that whole that well, whole day? Well, going to the White House was was you know, remarkable. I mean, I, I, I am a, I, I have always been an Obama supporter. You know, I campaigned for him. I voted for him twice. Um, and I respect, you know, everything he has done in office. And, um, and, uh, what I wanted to say was, you know, he's a huge White Sox fan. So we had almost talked about it, kind of a couple of players and I had joked about it, you know, beforehand, which is like, you know, okay, they're going to be one or two references to the White Sox, but you know, this is our day. So, and, and so that's, you know, the way it, you know, it came out wrong. It, it came out wrong because I remember the minute I heard this, who said that? Do you know who said that? That sounded like a woman's voice. I, um, I was in the East Room behind the other ropes that day, and I remember just hearing everybody go, ooh, like, what did she just say? And we couldn't really hear you yeah, clearly I, from where we were standing. But I think, and he responded as in the only way he could, which is like, and you wonder why people hate you. That's I right. I think that's what he said. But, but you know, that was sort of my, you know, and one of the great things uh, I think about um, President Obama was um, that, uh, you know, he, 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 has a very gr he has a really nice manner about him and why I felt comfortable doing that Kenny Williams um, uh, who is a friend of um, of President Obama's and plays basketball with him and was the um, general manager of the White Sox and he texted me like look at you talking smack with the president <laughs> um, and uh, and you know there goes there there went my idea of like you know <laughs> having a position in the administration <laughs> you, at the time I think you you noted uh, in in sort of defense of what happened and, and your apology afterwards, that you were one of the few Democrats in the Yankees front office, and you've described yourself as a red-hot liberal. Uh, do you consider yourself to be a very political person? 
I do. I do. I consider myself to be a red hot liberal still. <laughs> um, I also, you know, um, for there, there's the line, which is absolutely true. You know, for women, um, the personal is political. And um, yes, I consider myself to be um, a political person. I care very deeply about what happens um, in this country and, and in the world. And, and uh, I think you can't, I think sometimes we, you know, we live in the bubble of baseball. We're all concerned about wins and losses and, you know, war and ERA and all that sort of stuff. And, but there's a larger, world out there in which things are happening and I think you have to participate in that. We hear all the time about players going to hospitals and, and different charity organizations. We don't hear about a lot of the stuff that other people do. Uh, you've been very active within the Bronx community working with PS35, which is just a few blocks from here in elementary school. In the shadow of Yankee Stadium. You've organized uh, Yankee-sponsored readathons, directed a mentoring program where team employees are matched up with fourth and fifth graders. Not everybody takes the time to do these kinds of things. Why is this work so important to you? Um, well, number I mean, I have co-number ones. <laughs> um, one and one A. One and one and one A. Um, so, you know, my family uh, is, has always been about volunteering and giving back, and that's something that my parents raised me with. Um, my mother volunteered in the public schools. My father gave his time. Um, and um, the Yankees are very much. We don't publicize it. Nobody knows about really about the work of the Yankee Foundation. Um, Mr. Steinbrenner had the idea that if you tell people the good that you're doing, then it's not good. You're doing it because you want to say, look at me, look at me. So um, part of very much part of this organization is giving back. That's always the culture here. The culture is um, doing things for the community and, and there's no pressure to do so, but um, you know, the Steinbrenner family and the Yankee organization, they support it and encourage it. Um, and, and I'm grateful for that. I think a lot of employees here are grateful for that. It's, it's, they allow you the time to do things in the community. They support that doing things in the community. So not, you know, not every company that one works for would do that, but that's very much a part of the fabric here. Last question for you. We're sitting here just a couple of days after number two was hung up in Monument Park. Uh, we've heard a lot of Derek Jeter stories this week. You were around him for a very long time. What's your favorite Derek Jeter memory? Either personal or on the field. Oh, well, you know what? I have a, um, uh, I mean, um, I have a, um, number one, he had a great sense of humor. Very funny guy. Um, and uh, I think when you think of memories, you think of like something that where your, your paths crossed. Um, I, uh, so we were, it was a sham, I think it was in 2009, um, one of the, champagne um celebrations um and um he um um poured a bottle you know over my head or something like that which you know when you're in the schoolyard it's like oh my god <laughs> i got a bottle of champagne poured over my head um by the by the team captain um so i think he was doing an interview um uh he was in an, doing an interview it's almost reminded me of like you know maybe timing is not so good like the whole obama thing but um he was doing a, a an interview um with one of the networks and uh i came over with a bottle of champagne and i you know pulled the top of his jersey and i poured it down you know his back and i just heard the the woman who was interviewing him go gene afterman you know and i thought oh, timing not so <laughs> but you know it was it was great it was it was great to um you know, to celebrate that everybody else knows all the great things about Derek Jeter and, you know, knows the, I mean, he's the, 
you know, the, the giving back to the community, the participating in the community, the what it meant to be a Yankee, the the um, the um, you know the 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 tradition, the history that was, you know, the that was everything about Derek Jeter. But but I think the the one thing that 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 he that I hope people are catching up on is when he has said since then that you know there are new memories and there are new things that are happening, and I really feel that. Um, that he feels that he's a part of that river. The river keeps going. You know, he may have stepped away from the field, um, but he's, you know, forever a Yankee, forever part of the Yankee family. But also that, you know, when he arrived, there were many players before him. And when he leaves, there are many players after him that you take those memories and you build on them. And I think that's, you know, that's something that, that everybody has to remember. Baseball is a, like from when I was a kid, you know, the, the river keeps going and it'll, you know, there'll be baseball a hundred years from now. Um, so I think just being a part of, of that river, I've, I've been a part of the Yankees for 16 years. I've, I've known, you know, fantastic individuals in, in, on the field, the players, the coaches. Um, it's been, you know, just a, an honor and a privilege to know all of them, um, and to work with them. And, um, and, you know, I hope, I, I hope, you know, I hope I know when to hang up my cleats. We hope you enjoyed our latest throwback episode of Executive Access. Coming up in future weeks, we'll be back with more than a dozen new episodes, including sit-downs with Phillies assistant GM Ned Rice, Pirates president Travis Williams, and many more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Part 19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Stay safe, everybody.